Welcome to the listening audience to season one, episode three of Eno Tools University. We are going to be talking about corks. The scope of this discussion is we live in a world where about 20 billion bottles of wine are made in a year. And the reason why I chose the folks I'm about to introduce for this call, not only because of my own manufacturer slash slash agent uh, relationship. It goes beyond that. The reason for including these folks on this this episode is because out of the 20 billion bottles, roughly, of wine made a year on planet Earth, corks make up about 13 billion of the closures on those 20 billion bottles. And this manufacturer we have as guests today are, are responsible for about 6 billion of those corks. So these guys cast a long shadow in the closure business and have lots of history. So everyone, I'm very happy to introduce to you uh, Mr. Pedro Fernandez and Ms. Alyssa Taylor from Amarum Cork America. So welcome, you two. Thanks, Joe. We appreciate the opportunity to be here. It's an honor to join you in this conversation. Um, You know, you mentioned a couple of facts uh, about Amarum Cork. Amory is also a 152-year-old company, family-run, and uh, has been in the cork business for this, this long. The numbers you mentioned in terms of total production are a fact, but more important than the number of the closures is the commitment to quality and the continuous investment into research and development. That's what drives us, and that's, that's the, the most important characteristic out of Amory and cork is the, the, the goal to improve on the quality of the product independently of the scale and the number of corks that we manufacture on an annual basis. And Alyssa, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at Amarum? Of course. So at our Napa, California location, I manage the quality and technical service departments. Um, we are in charge of ensuring all corks are up to par in terms of quality when they arrive to our facility. Um, We do many checks and analyses here in our lab. And then once the corks are finished and produced, after they're branded and treated and packed, we will also do more analysis and ensure the product is is within specification before shipping to our final clients. All right. So that's a, a little bit to give the audience an idea of what Alyssa is busy doing all day. And there's more because I know I've had, uh, I've had several opportunities to clutter up Alyssa's schedule. So if you would, Pedro, I'm sure a lot of people are curious because I've heard in passing from a sommelier here or there, or maybe like a beverage manager at some you know large hospitality oriented facility, that they are under, under the impression that uh, keeping in mind, of course, 70% of the earth's surface is water, 30% roughly is land. But the interesting side note is that only 1.2% of the Earth's landmass is actually cork oak forest. And for those of you who don't know or maybe have forgotten, uh, the cork tree lives during the process of us harvesting the bark. Pedro, if you could offer us some kind of guidance about the state of the ecology of the cork forest or what's being done to protect that precious resource. That's, that's a great question, uh, Joe. And uh, um, I will start by, by giving... Uh, the audience a little bit of explanation about the source of the raw material that is the base of our entire uh, business today. So cork stoppers are produced out of cork bark that comes 
out of the process of sustainably harvest trees, trees that never get fallen down. Unlike perhaps some of the myths that still exist out there, we're neither running out of cork trees, neither do cork trees get cut every time a tree gets harvested. And I think that is quite important uh, note to highlight. The second aspect of these is that these cork trees uh, represent about 7 million acres of forest. This forest is primarily located in the Iberia Peninsula, southern France, western of Italy, and then uh, in a few countries of northern Africa. These are unique ecosystems. These are primarily spontaneous growth forests. Quite remarkable that these trees live up to 200, 250 years, and they continuously regenerate the cork bark that gets sustainably harvested in cycles of nine years. As you might be aware, the fact that these trees exist for this amount of time, they are an enormous carbon sink contributor to our um, to our planet. And so for every ton pork harvest, that is the equivalent to 73 tons of CO2 capture. I think that is a, a very remarkable figure that uh, um, that perhaps a lot of the, the people listening to this podcast never realize. I know we are going to cover in a little while uh, some additional aspects of different types of closures in general, but the reality is that from a sustainability standpoint, from an ecological standpoint, the fact that cork stoppers are made out of a recyclable, biodegradable and compostable material gives them a leg up over any other alternative closures out there today in the market. Well, that's mind-blowing to think about that much CO2 potentially prevented from getting into the atmosphere just because these trees exist. That's correct. I came across a figure a few years ago that 1.2% of the Earth's landmass is responsible relating directly to the amount of CO2 removal of something like four and a half to 5% of the CO2 put into the atmosphere in a year by a consumption of fossil fuels. When you are pulling the cork out of a bottle, you can smile and think about the fact that you're one of the reasons why that cork tree exists. You're one of the reasons why the forests are protected and, and revered as they are, because you're, you're giving those trees a job. Well, how about the economic aspect of all this? Uh, how many employees does Amarum have worldwide, for example? So the total number of employees of Amarin Cork is approximately 4,500 worldwide. Wow. Um, 3,000 of them are um, located in our manufacturing facilities based out of Portugal and Spain. That's where the core uh, of all these staff is. Take in mind, Joe, that some of these employees are, are not necessarily just working in the cork stopper facilities. Amring is uh, also um, very diversified within cork applications. We do cork flooring, we do cork insulation, we do special applications for cork. So we do anything you can possibly imagine out of cork as a raw material. But the additional 1,500 uh, are located in companies and subsidiaries across the globe. And so companies like Amarin Cork America, located here in Napa, as you mentioned early on, similar companies like these in distribution markets where the uh, beverage industry has some level of expression. 
Alyssa, I don't know if you ever heard this story, but I had a customer trust me so much that they sent an email asking who makes a good screw cap applicator. And for any of you folks who, who've done business with Eno Tools over the last 17 years, um, you probably know that I'm sort of like the go-to guy. Like if I don't have it, I know who does. And I know most of the time I know the ones not to call. And typically I can put you on to a pretty good source for something like that. But at the same time, I was a little bit offended because that meant that my court customer was thinking about switching to screw caps. So I wrote him an email. It was about 500 words where I cited bibliographies and, and stated arguments. And um, I sent links to Nielsen numbers and, and sales growth numbers for wines in different price categories. And then I talked about the environmental impact of using aluminum as a closure. It would seem at the end of an argument like this, the only comeback the winemaker could have for not using a natural cork closure was fear of TCA. Pedro, have you seen out there on the West Coast or maybe globally speaking, have you seen some good-sized customers getting back away from screw caps? You know, Joe, reality is screw caps have certainly earned a fraction of the market and have been successful in doing so over the last two decades. Um, I would say that uh, the, some markets with more success than others here in the United States, we have seen them progressively, certainly gaining some, some specific varietals. I don't think that we have got to the point where people will start reconsidering their closure choices. I think that uh, the experience with screw caps is still very uh, early stages in terms of winemaking in the United States. I think I have a very unique position when it comes down to, to different types of closures. I think the screw cap is an alternative closure system, totally different than a cork closure. And as such, it's part of the analogical tools that the winemakers have access to. And from my vantage point, I understand why some particular styles of wine can be perfectly happy with the screw cap as a closure system. Uh, I believe that there are today solutions within the cork portfolio that can guarantee the same level of, of uh, results and the same level of uh, outcome uh, that the winemakers are intended. And when you overlap that with the argument about sustainability, I think that cork presents a much better value proposition and, uh, and winemaking and a logical tool than screw caps. That said, we don't have the power of influentiating every decision out there. And we understand certainly that, uh, that uh, some people are, are today choosing to, to put a screw cap in, in, as I said, some very specific types of, uh, of wines uh, in the market. Good insights on that topic. I will tell you that professionally, I'm very much in favor of natural cork closures. If you walk through my wine cellar, you will find some bottles with screw caps for sure. Do you like glass closures as much as I do? That's an interesting question. And maybe Elisa can interject here since she actually has a background of winemaking as well. Previously to join Hammering Cork, I will go ahead and give you thoughts. Certainly today, I envision that the winemakers... When they're making their wine, they have a pretty good picture about what they intend to do and how they expect their wines to be tasted by the final consumer. And the number of choices out there in the market to close glass containers is quite broad. I know you ask about glass closures, 
You can use screw caps, you can use plastic closures, although uh, I'm very biased against it for obvious reasons. And within cork closures, you have an array of uh, multiple solutions, all the way from the closures that behave very much airtight to closures that allow a process of microoxygenation to occur over the years and allow the wine to evolve in a certain pattern that sometimes is also the intended purpose from the winemaking standpoint. I think that there's a place for everything. I think that glass closures present, uh, without a question, an aesthetic and a unique package design. Um, from a fundamental and a logical tool, they have an oxygen transfer rate that is unique to their own type of package that is different than the vast majority of the quirks or it is different than a screw cap. So they have definitely a place and definitely a positioning in terms of the solutions that are out there in the market. I don't know what Elisa thinks about it. To piggyback on what you're saying, Pedro, I would agree. I think there are many closure options um, that a winemaker or a wine business can choose. And I think the glass closures have a great place for potentially fast rotation wines. So whether those are white wines or rosé wines, and I think it can, can add to the package and, and what a wine company wants to be marketing. Um, but in addition to that, there are potential court closure options for fast rotation wines. Um, so I think it's a great item that, that a company can choose. And I think there are other cork options within that market that can be chosen as well. I love that you just mentioned rosé because we've got a recurring theme here. Episodes one and two, rosé was discussed to some degree. So it comes to mind immediately that uh, the perception, the data would dictate that color sells rosé. And Alyssa, with your winemaking background and your, your packaging experience from your, your prior professional life, you might feel like I'm baiting you a little bit when I say this, but <laughs> what closure in the natural cork family do you think would be best to preserve and uh, to guarantee that that beautiful color in a rosé stays that way when the wine is on the shelf? In my personal opinion, I think the NutriCork could be a great option. Um, yes. So this is a, a, techn <laughs> a technical cork, so a, a micro-agglomerated cork that offers a more reductive type of closure. So the oxygen transfer rate is much less over time than you would see on a natural cork, um, but it can preserve the freshness of that wine. And we do recommend NutriCorks to be used for faster rotation wines. Um, that doesn't mean that the closure can't technically perform five, 10 years down the road. But in terms of for winemaking style, I do believe the NutriCork is, is a great option for, for rosé wines. Pedro, how do you feel about that? Uh, Alyssa is much better qualified to speak on behalf of, <laughs> of winemaking part of it than, than myself. I think there is not a universal answer to, to that question. Uh, I think that there are multiple considerations that, that need to be taken into account. We've seen a lot of rosé clothes with natural cork in the market. We see a, a lot of rosé clothes with a glass closure. In the United States, for some reason, and going against the, what most of the France does as a natural producers of rosé, uh, rosé in the United States, you tend to find them more usually under screw cap, which is uh, quite, quite surprising. 
But as I said, there's no right or wrong. There's a winemaking decision that gets taken at a certain point in time with certain considerations. Our job is about educating the decision makers and make sure that they have all the facts and all the information available to them when they make that decision. I hope that I come across to folks like I do my job sort of that way. The way you just described it is to give the information and and let the winemaker make the call because I think if keeping out oxygen is your goal when packaging a, a bottle of wine, then the obvious things that come to mind would be screw cap, a glass stopper, or you might ask what in the natural cork family could keep out oxygen as efficiently as a screw cap or a glass stopper. And I guess the answer to that is we could come really close with a neutral cork for that person who wants the customer to have the pulling the cork experience, which I think is, is part of the love we all have from the passion we have for wine is the, the unveiling that anticipation before you watch it splash into the glass is really fun and might be part of the reason why we all do what we do for a living. Who knows? But anyway, so. Joe, if you, if you let me uh, interject just for a second and, uh, and, you know, closures obviously have a lot to do with oxygen transfer uh, over time, but we cannot ignore the, the factor of distortion, which is basically the amount of oxygen that a, a bottle of wine uh, takes at the time of bottling or very uh, immediately after. And that is a process that also needs to be controlled. Actually, from a proportional standpoint, uh, the amount of oxygen that a bottle of wine can intake at time of bottling is, is several factors, several times bigger than the, the accumulated oxygen over the, the entire shelf life of any type of closure. So uh, this is perhaps an area that um, technically does not get discussed en uh, enough, but the reality is that uh, there's definitely opportunities for a better control of the oxygen intake at the time of bottling that sometimes has enormous impact um, on the, how the wines evolve. And most of the times the closure ends up uh, um, uh, taking the responsibility and that this could be either on a cork or a screw cap. But, uh, uh, but without a doubt, this is a very important aspect of, uh, of, uh, of the bottling process that uh, I think at times it doesn't get discussed enough. I agree. I mean, it's it's definitely an important factor. And I think that that, Pedro, is probably the best segue into Joe asking Alyssa to please tell us in, uh, in, in your own words what you think would be a perfect bottling. A perfect bottling. Okay. Yes. So I think I'll, I'll start from the beginning. Um, going back to selecting the, the closure um, that's purchased for the specific bottling. And I think it's important to always remember that there's a three-part system involved in this. And so that's going to be the, the potential cork closure or another closure, uh, the bottle being physically used, and as well as the beverage that's being bottled. And so it's important to remember that all three of these parts form a system. And at Amram, we like to collect information on each of those factors so we can recommend the best cork. Um, I think a good example to talk about is 
three different beverages. So you have spirits uh, to still wine to sparkling. And each of those different beverages uh, will require different rates of compression um, based on the pressure um, that the beverage is, is bottled under. Um, so one example for sparkling is a typical sparkling bottle um, has a bore, so an entrance bore at the top internal diameter of 16 and a half to 17 millimeters. And traditional champagne or traditional sparkling uh, will be at six bars of pressure. And so in that application, we want to see approximately 13 millimeters of compression. So we want the cork diameter to be larger, 13 millimeters, than the entrance bore. And so that allows the cork to compress and push against the glass and create a seal. And that's really what a closure is meant to do, is to seal, um, number one. And so a perfect bottling starts with ordering the perfect cork or closure for the project that you are working on. Um, here in Napa, we do have the ability to profile glass. And so that allows us to take an in-depth look at internal diameter. Um, bottle specifications for manufacturers are great in that they will show you the entrance bore. Um, but there are times when the internal diameter um, can have different behavior as you move down the depth. Um, so say at zero millimeters depth when the bottle is opening, you could have a different diameter at 10 millimeters depth, 30 millimeters depth, or 40 millimeters depth, and even 50 millimeters depth near the bottom of say a 49 millimeter cork. And so I do feel it's important um, just to remember that it's a multi-part system. And so we really are here to help support um, providing the best closure in terms of dimensions and size um, for your specific application. So first part of bottling, uh, definitely ordering the right cork. Um, I think the other part of bottling is making sure that the cork or the products that you've ordered um, have had good storage conditions. So when any product does leave our facility here in Napa, we are guaranteeing that that cork is within specification and will perform from a technical standpoint. And that being said, if cork is ordered, uh, I do believe it should be ordered for um, immediate use or short-term use. We do. Um, allow a six month shelf life from production date. And that is due to the fact that uh, all still wine corks or sparkling corks or, or bar tops for spirit corks do have a surface treatment. And that surface treatment is needed on all corks to aid in insertion and later um, extraction from the glass. And so over time, that surface treatment can um, degrade, and especially if corks are not stored in proper conditions. And so I do feel once corks are ordered, um, if they're not used immediately, they do need to be used within six months. Um, we do recommend always storing in original and sealed bags um, away from sunlight. And temperature and humidity control is very important to make sure those corks are in optimal condition. So I think that's sort of the first part is ordering the correct cork and making sure the corks are received and stored properly before use. And then the second main part is inspecting all bottling equipment. Um, it's really, really important to have all of your equipment dialed in. Um, I'm talking about anything from jaws and springs to 
plungers and the alignment of the plunger, um, ensuring that you have a, a quick or a slow compression and then a quick plunge and making sure everything's um, synchronized during that process. Um, all the way to ensuring that your vacuum is pulling. Um, as Pedro mentioned earlier, during the bottling process, you can have an influx of oxygen and um, really ensuring that your, your vacuum is dialed in and working properly can really help a lot there. Um, so after inspecting all equipment, making sure everything is, is free of nicks, everything is lubricated, everything is working in unison. Um, another aspect is to, to make sure that the jaws are set to the right setting. And so um, a typical still wine bottle has an 18 and a half millimeter bore. And uh, we recommend five to six millimeters of compression for still wines. And so a typical um, natural cork sold for still wines has 24 millimeters of diameter. And what that does is it allows adequate compression. And so we wanna make sure that that cork is smaller and compressed to less of a diameter than the bottle opening. So again, if the cork is 24 millimeters in diameter, your bottle bore is 18 and a half millimeters, we need that cork to be smaller. And so we will recommend approximately 15 and a half millimeters. And so it's important to make sure that your jaws have the right settings. Um, again, free of nicks, able to um, compress slowly and smoothly um, as to not harm the cork, but really making sure that cork is smaller in diameter than your bottle. Because if you try to insert a cork when it's bigger than the bottle, you're going to run into some issues there. In addition to, to checking all of those things and, and compression, and then the synchronization, you want to have a quick plunge. And so again, slow compression, quick plunge, and have the timing be good there. You also want to make sure your plunger is not inserting the cork too far. So you want to have the cork no more than one millimeter down from your bottle bore. So have it be level there. In addition, fill height is really important. I recommend making sure you have no, no less than 15 millimeters of headspace. I think um, at bottling, when you bottle at, at cooler temperatures, approximately 60 degrees, that's not always the temperature that wine will be stored at, especially if it's a red wine. And so ensuring you have adequate headspace really will help when wine potentially expands with warmer temperatures and won't cause the cork to push up or have some seepage there. Um, so I think there's many factors that, that go into bottling. To summarize, ordering the right cork inspecting your equipment prior to bottling, and then ensuring during the bottling process, you're, you're making sure that you are following headspace recommendation and, and things of that nature. You covered a lot of ground. One question, assuming that vacuum is working as it should at the corker and, you know, the fill height is correct. Given those two variables satisfied, so to speak, like the, they've met the requirement. The last one that comes to mind for me is what temperature should the wine be in a still wine with a typical six millimeters of compression and good vacuum working and proper fill height um, to guarantee a better experience? When we talk about 15 millimeters of headspace um, at the time of bottling, that is referring to either 20 Celsius, um, which is approximately 58 degrees Fahrenheit. So 
in winemaking, we typically like to see wine bottled at no higher temperatures than, than 60 degrees Celsius or 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Got it. Last but not least, a couple of years back, I'm under the impression that Mr. Amram made a remark like he would single-handedly try to make TCA uh, an absolutely historic concept by 2021, I believe. Is that, do I have it even partway right? You are correct, though. There's been a statement that the goal of Amarin Cork would be to eradicate TCA out of the cork industry. And I think that uh, um, in retrospect, the journey has been quite challenging. You know, we, we work with a natural product that it, it comes out of a, out of forests, um, TCA is not generated in the manufacturing process of, uh, of cork itself. It's something that exists already in the material once it gets harvested out of the forest. And so the reality is that the Amring in particular, but the industry in general, has spent the last two decades attempting to completely eradicate TCA out of cork stoppers. And the results are quite substantial and quite impressive. Through this journey, you saw the surface of new products that today guarantee 100% performance in terms of TCA. And I'm referring namely to microgranulate quarks like the NutriQuark, which is the brand that Amring uses through technologies most recently like Xpore, which is a supercritical CO2 treatment of the granulates that allows you to have 100% guaranteed TCA-free product. But you also are talking about the overall industry focus and improvement on this matter. The reality is that a lot of natural corks today as a fraction, uh, absolute infamous fraction of a percentage of incidence of TCA. Have we 100, 100% fulfilled that, that goal and that objective? Not yet on the natural corks. We do have a line of products that we call MD Tech that comes with an individual guarantee where each single cork is tested in a 100% inspection methodology. But we're not yet at a time where we put all our natural corks through a technology of that nature. So we've done a lot of improvements. We've launched Naturity last year, which is a revolutionary curative process that eliminates TCA. And when you're talking about TCA, you're also talking about eliminating uh, other kinds of valenosol compounds that are chemically structural close to TCA, which makes the corks much more neutral and makes the corks cleaner. And so I think that the, the best is yet to come. I believe in the commitment of memory. I've seen throughout my uh, um, almost two decades in this industry improvements on that front. And I certainly see that today as, as a very tangible finish line that I think we are going to reach in a very short term. So it's safe to say that natural corks or, or closures from the natural cork family today are more consistent and more reliable than they've ever been. Uh, absolutely, without, without a question. And uh, even for someone... Uh, like Elisa that, that is in charge of all our quality controls. She can speak on her own experience based on the thousands and thousands of data points of checks uh, and tests for TCA that we do 
on a regular basis, how much improvement uh, have we seen just in the last three years alone? That's impressive. Certainly that brings to mind something else for Alyssa. You mentioned profiling bottles for customers, which I'm aware uh, of you doing. I've, I've had some, I've had a couple of, of customers request a, a suggestion for a certain type of closure after they chose their bottle. And this is the hard part. I know that we're all creatures of habit. We all do things the way we do them. But there's an entire database being constructed right now by Alyssa, from what I understand, which is effectively a, a great big spreadsheet describing which closures are available to use in certain commonly used bottles. And I'm aware also that there's a spot on the internet, which, you know, folks, if you want me to send you a link to it, I will. Um, it's a list of bottles which have passed muster, which are compatible with glass stoppers. So if you want to be the cool kid at the party with the, you know, really pretty custom made glass instead of, if you just want something different, something besides a cork or a screw cap, and you're looking at glass and you wonder what bottle to use, please ask that question before you order your glass. Because poor Alyssa out there slaving away in Napa is doing this exhaustive research, profiling these bottles, using the, the lab equipment at Amarin to make sure that the customer has a pleasant experience once they marry closure to bottle. And the work is being done. And this is a complimentary service offered by Amarin Cork America that we will tell you which bottles will work if you have your eye on a certain closure. And you can continue the personalization with you know whatever label you have in mind using your designer and, and showing them the closure, which has caught your eye. So we can very much partner in the process of dressing your wine for the job you want it to have. And I, I can't say the name of the spirit, but I promise you there is a spirit which is regarded as a very high quality beverage, sort of a statement, a staple, a benchmark, a top shelf type of distilled beverage which began its life as an extremely average product in a very pretty bottle. I'm not making the accusation or contrast to say that your wine isn't outstanding. I'm sure that it is. Packaging is a big part of it. It's, it's an added service. We don't, just, we don't just facilitate the delivery of plastic bags full of corks. Oftentimes we are part of a project for a customer who's trying to develop a statement beverage and I dare say there's not a manufacturer on the planet with greater capabilities than that of the largest cork producer on the planet, Amarin Cork. Even if you don't do business with Eno Tools, if you are shopping for closures, please always keep Amarin in mind. And I want to take this moment to thank Alyssa and Pedro for their time for participating in this project. And hopefully we've accomplished our goal because everyone needs closure in their life. Hopefully we've brought you folks some closure with this episode of Eno Tools University. So thank you, Alyssa, and thank you, Pedro. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. It was a pleasure. Speaking of closure, that's a wrap for season one, episode three, all about corks, the ecology and economy of the cork industry and what constitutes a good bottling and what your other closure options are. Thank you very much for listening to Eno Tools University to you by enotools.com.